Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Joshua Eustace, who's a founding member of Telephone Tel Aviv. Originally hailing from New Orleans, Eustace and his childhood friend Charles Cooper crafted a bittersweet melodic IDM sound that resonated with audiences far beyond the bayou. But tragically, their collaboration was cut short by Cooper's death in 2009. The years between now and then can be described as an adrift period for Eustace, albeit a prolific one. He continued to work with Nine Inch Nails, made an album as Sons of Magdalene, contributed to the Tropic of Cancer project, and dove back into glitchy drums with his second woman duo. In conversation with Matt McDermott, Eustace sheds a light on his history as a producer and fan of electronic music, before candidly addressing his choice to curtail the grieving process and return as Telephone Tel Aviv. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Joshua Eustace is up next. here in Los Angeles with Josh Eustace, founding member of Telephone Tel Aviv, who's also taken part in a number of other projects, including Blackest Ever Black Act, Tropic of Cancer, Second Woman on Spectrum Spools, and a lot more that we'll speak about today. How are you, man? Good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well. First of all, congratulations on getting back on the road with TTA and as well as the reissue, which contains uh, some demos from that period. Yeah, from, embarrassingly enough, yeah. From what were, I can only imagine to be very meticulous, kind of painstaking sessions from that time, as was like the spirit of the times, would you say? Yeah, I mean, that was 98, 99 when Charlie and I started working together. And uh, software really wasn't anywhere near where it is now. There wasn't really a way to do what we wanted to do. And the only way we could figure out how to do it was by making thousands of sounds and then arranging them by hand in the window and Pro Tools. So it was a ton of really meticulous work that was all done drunk. Seriously, we would go out every night and get absolutely shit-canned and then come back at like 6 in the morning and then work all morning and then sleep at, you know, 2 in the afternoon, 1 in the afternoon and wake up at 8, repeat, repeat, repeat. This went on for pretty much all of 1999 and that we ended up with... The stuff that you hear in um, Archive 99 is essentially the demo that we sent to Hefty. In fact, it is the demo we sent to Hefty, minus a couple of things. So, I mean, listening to it, first of all, 
I don't think you'd guess that to begin with, but I, I guess you guys were some pretty emotional drunks then. Yeah, I think I think Charlie was known for being a well, let's just say an emotional drunk, and I'm I'm an emotional drunk as well, which is why I don't really drink anymore, or I'm very. I mean, I might have a beer or a whiskey, but I definitely don't like to get fucked up anymore. Also, and then having having to just correct all the work that you do when you're wasted the next day, it's like God, this is a goddamn disaster. You know, I have to peel through all of these terrible edits and all this sloppy work. Anyway, we were as you can hear, heavily indebted to, you know, Aphex Twin and Autecker. And we're also simultaneously really into things like Pole and Oval and Tortoise and um, the kind of thrill jockey world, the Chicago world was really interesting to us. Hefty Records was a big deal to us. The stuff that Slicker had done and Schematic was really cool. Um, the stuff that um, Josh Kay and Romulo Del Castillo were doing was really cool. Scott Heron. Richie Devine, like this whole kind of, you know, almost American movement was was a big influence to us. And we kind of wanted to like, oh, maybe we need to try to contribute to this kind of American sound of electronic music at the time or whatever. And, and that scene, which is loosely categorized as IDM, have you observed anything quite as vital as that since? Oh, I mean, vital little micro genres of music. There's tons of them. I mean, the whole grime thing isn't micro anymore. It's tremendous. And that's super vital, especially in the United Kingdom. But it's, its influence kind of goes around the world. I mean, it turns up in all kinds of other places. And that's just one example. I could do this all day. I mean, we could talk about dubstep and how it morphed and changed into this kind of, uh, you know, big room sort of thing that sort of revolutionized what the world thinks about electronic music but if you go back to its roots and look at things like garage at the turn of the millennia and you look at you know that coming out of house music in a way but all uh, but also kind of influenced by this kingston thing and then it sort of morphed in the mid-aughts into this like burial uh you know post basic channel dub influences and stuff like this with these cut up vocals i mean it's ubiquitous now so there's all these tiny little micro genres of course that like sort of filter out into the world and become these like huge things that everybody is somehow aware of even if they're not necessarily aware of martin or burial or somebody like that i mean idm uh, i don't know if it was ever really vital i mean it's certainly vital to me i mean the music that i loved was often categorized as that so. Well, I mean, your status as a complete music nerd is obviously not up for debate, um, but, you know, those sorts of movements that you're speaking of benefit from hyperconductivity and in terms of grime, like sort of stateside equivalents like Rabbit or something like that, like come up through Bandcamp and get out there that way. But how did you at the time and even going back to your sort of rave days and discovering electronic music in New Orleans, like how, how did you guys all sort of find each other and form a network at the time? It's hard to say, but mostly it was by trying to get shows booked, you know, for what we were doing in New Orleans. It was like, we could play little house parties and stuff like that, or a little bar here and there and people would come, but it was never really more than 40 or 50 people in a tiny place. So eventually it came to the point of like, you know, in 1999, for example, oh shit, you know, Funksterong, push button objects, 
And, uh, you know, the schematic guys are doing a party in Miami. Let's go down there and like try to meet up with them or whatever and go to the show. It'll be cool music. And so we went down there and like, I think before we went, I think Charlie sent an email to Josh K just saying like, Hey dude, we're, you know, big fans of what you guys are doing. We'd love to send you some music or whatever. And we sent him music and he was like, Oh cool. This is cool shit. Like, let's, you're coming to Miami. Let's hang out. And then we meet and then. You know, then that's when we met uh, Seven from Chocolate Industries and Rom and Josh from Schematic, among other people. And then also at the same time kind of became acquainted through similar thing of like going to Atlanta to play a show. We met Scott Heron and Richie Devine and kept in touch with them. And then it was basically just keeping in touch through email and sending tracks back and forth. Like, hey, dude, does this am I, does this suck? Or like, is this cool? Like, or, oh, here's my new shit. Like, but it was all, we used to pass it around on CDRs when we'd see each other in Atlanta. It was like, you drop a CDR on somebody. That was back in the days of CD burners, man. Scott Heron. I still have like a bunch of Scott Heron's CDRs that he gave me with his tag all over it, like with the De La Rosa and Asora stuff just scribbled all over it. It's really cool. I mean, I know that that sort of feedback that you received from people that you respected was obviously invaluable at the time, but you and uh, Charlie, rest in peace, were always kind of tough on each other to begin with, right? And that, that's something that you've historically been a bit of a perfectionist or sort of unwilling to let things go out into the world without being absolutely sure or just being like, okay, I'm sick of this. We have to put it out at this point. Is, is, is that something that you'd say was always the case with you? It was... Well, it's a little different than that. I think a more apt description would actually be that Charlie and I were both very hard on the music. He and I were never hard on each other musically. I mean, we would fight about other shit, but we never, ever fought about music or argued about music in the studio. Not once. But that just comes down to trust. You know, if he felt really strongly about something, then I trusted him enough to just go along with it, even if it seemed weird or not quite the right thing. And every time I did, I was happy that I did. And and vice versa. If I felt really strongly about something being right or something being wrong, he would go along with it. So ultimately that is done in service of, you know, the output of the music or whatever. And it was and yeah, we would belabor things to a point ad nauseum to a point where it was really pointless and we could have just worked on these songs forever. Technically, I feel like maybe we never should have released Fahrenheit fair enough and we should just it should have just been a thing like what whatever Kanye's doing with Life of Pablo where it's just it's up on Spotify but it changes a little bit every day you know like I feel like Fahrenheit fair enough we could still be working on that I could still be like in OS 9 Pro Tools 5.1 or 5.0 whatever the fuck it was still just sliding little fucking sounds around and printing new effects I mean so in that way, yeah, we were perfectionists. And whenever a song was done was the point where both of us just looked at each other and said, well, fuck it. We, I mean, we could do this forever or we could just print it. So just, let's just print it. Leading up to the reissue of the record, which contains some demos and unheard stuff from that period, was striking upon listening to it 15 years after it was released, 17 years after the sessions, like getting on two decades is how well it holds up. It sounds remarkably current. And I mean, there is the melodic core that really kind of holds everything together and just makes it appealing as on a technical level and an emotional level, just a general musical level. I know that you're a pretty humble guy, but what do you think set it, set the group apart and, and gave it such an impact at the time? You know, I really, I have no idea. Because to me, it sounds kind of funny. Like when I listen to it, I think of two 22-year-old kids like 
I was still living in my mom's house. I just finished college, like zero shit going for me in life. Like I had a college degree that was really hard to get. And in the end, ultimately worthless outside of an incredible amount of knowledge. Um, what was that degree in? It's a bachelor of music in theory and composition. And, uh, it kind of gave me a good leg up into being able to write music and understanding harmony and all of that kind of stuff and understanding the history of music. And, and I, I'm, I wouldn't change that. I would still study music in, at the university if I had the choice again. What set it apart, I think maybe was that we were so hyper-focused on melody and harmony and electronic music at the time had a little bit of that, but it was really more about just the sound design or just the beats or whatever. And the two things that we wanted to change, at least for our own music, was that we wanted it to be super romantic and you know really melodic and a strong emphasis on, on harmony and progression and these sorts of things. And we also wanted it to be rooted in African-American music and not rooted in, in just purely techno or just or just purely house, but rooted in, in like a really broad kind of swath of African-American music or black music, rap, hip hop, R&B, huge influence from day one. Of course, house and techno, but more we wanted the beats to kind of not be so stiff because there was a, a sort of kind of rigidity in electronic music at the time that was part of what made it cool, but we wanted to go away from that and make the beats a little more fluid and have things a little more funky or something. You've also mentioned bounce rap, which is built around two drum samples for the most part as, as sort of being formative. And this was just sort of unavoidable living in New Orleans at the time. Yeah. I mean, it was ever like the idea of twerking, like being in relatively recent thing for the rest of the world is a patently absurd notion to anybody from New Orleans because we were saying twerk and talking about twerking in the early <laughs> 90s and uh, and Bounce Rap reflected that and talked about it constantly. It was a type of dancing that was done in, in New Orleans at certain types of parties, not done by white people. It is, it is an invention of the African-American community of New Orleans, pure and simple. Don't argue with me. You'll lose. That's where it comes from. And you might even be able to say that it comes from C.J. Pete Housing Authority or St. Thomas. I couldn't tell you which one, but I know people that could know. Bounce rap was ubiquitous. Everybody listened to it. It was it was the music of the black culture of New Orleans, but everybody loved it. White people loved it. Any Latinos that were living there loved it. Everybody loved it. It's party music. There's nothing really negative about bounce rap. There were battles and diss tracks in bounce rap, but it was all kind of tongue-in-cheek and a little bit done sort of nudge nudge wink wink it's party music and uh super fun and it will i mean i remember back in the in the 90s if you put on any of those old songs at a party it would just go off completely off going back a little further to or simultaneous but before you got into the non-repetitive beats like going back to to four four specifically like from my understanding like you guys down there were basically like mail ordering 12 inches, like house and techno 12 inches kind of blind. And like, it would sort of be like, oh, I have my store that I'm ordering from, or, you know, can you, can you speak about like the rave scene that, you know, you came up in to some extent and how, how did you get involved with that? Yeah. The rave scene, I came into it uh, just from dudes that I met in freshman year in college, you know, like 90, 
No, I mean, that's actually not true. I was kind of going to raves in high school. Well, what we called raves. They were usually in clubs, but there was one big rave every year, 93, 94, 95. They would happen at the State Palace Theater, and I would go to those, and they were fun. But I didn't really know much about the music at the time. Simultaneously, two things happened. I, when I was 17 and 18, going into college, had a job at a record store there that had an electronic music section. And I randomly picked out this compilation that looked cool, and it was the Trezor 2 compilation and had, you know, Maurizio and Jeff Mills and all this kind of stuff on it. Joey Beltram, I think, was even on there at the time. But it opened with the, the Domino remix, and that was really formative for me. And that's when I realized, like, wait, this is what Dan- this is n- not what's playing at these raves that I go to. Like, this is way better. Like, I'm way more into this. Who are these Trezor guys? And I never, I didn't meet anybody that could explain that to me until maybe 95 when I met this guy, Andre Get who was a couple years older than me and went to college and is literally the Matt Pinfield of techno. And nobody knows it because he's not a public DJ anymore. He doesn't really go around, but he literally taught me everything I know about techno and house. And then what did that look like? Were you were you going over to his house? Or were you just almost getting on the decks? Every day, almost every day going to his house and he taught me how to DJ in like 95 and got me started and say like, okay, cool. Here's an advent record. Okay, cool. Here's X 101 Atlantis. Match them up, motherfucker. You know, <laughs> like, okay, cool. Like, oh, have you heard this? I remember, I remember when Surgeon Basic Tonal Vocabulary came out. Was that like, what, 97, 98 or whatever? And he's like, dude, you got to come over today. We got a heater. And, uh, and we like put it on and mind blowing record. Uh, one of the records that I used a lot to kind of learn how to beat match was the there was a, God, I don't remember the name of it, but there was a Surgeon 12-inch on Downwards that maybe in 95 or 96. I know it was also on a Claude Young DJ Kicks around 96. And it's like the classic Surgeon techno track. It's this tritone uh, synth line, and it just absolutely destroys. It's And still holds up 20 years later. It's still absolutely future-driven dance music. But yeah, Andre taught me how to do it. And he taught me a lot about, oh, you like Trezor? Oh, you need to check out all of this guy's shit. His name's Moritz von Oswald. Check out the, look at this stuff, look at this stuff. And then later it was Porter Ricks and Chain Reaction and all this kind of stuff. So I had a good mentor when it comes to dance music. Was the vault in Berlin, was that something that you exoticized in New Orleans, which is like a very unique place in the US? Or if you know, you were picking up like Axis records or something like that. Did you see these records like, played in public or like understand like the impact that they could have in a club setting at the time. No, man, in New Orleans, there was like, there were a bunch of DJs in New Orleans. Most of them played kind of trancey, progressive stuff. The only dudes, and I'm not shitting you, the only dudes in New Orleans playing techno were Andre, me, and Dave Manick, who is the dad of all techno in New Orleans. He is the father of any kind of techno dudes that came out of New Orleans, Dave Manick. And uh, Dave knew... He knew the Underground Resistance dudes and would go up to Detroit every once in a while and play. He's older than I am, so he must be almost 50 now. But shredding classic Detroit techno guy. He also was sort of Andre's mentor in a way. So he sort of mentored me and Andre together. And uh, that was it for techno in New Orleans. Nobody, and I mean nobody, even knew what the fuck it was. You'd go to a rave party and not hear one note, not one quarter note of techno. So, I mean, I guess in that sense, like you got lucky and learned what the real shit was. And when did it, when did it start to move away from DJing to, uh, you know, being 
the studio nerd that you've been for the last 20 years? Well, I was already making electronic music. I, I first started making electronic music. I got my first, you know, kind of synthesizer scenario sequencer in maybe 93. And it was a Korg M1 and a borrowed uh, Juno 106 from my friend's older brother who didn't give a shit about the 106 anymore. And, um, and it wasn't particularly a sought after synth at the time. So it was freely given. And, uh, and a brother PDC 100 sequencer, hardware sequencer, what a piece of shit. Later in MMT8, later of uh, 95, it became a MacBook 520 with Studio Vision doing the sequencing on it. But that was, you know, right around that time was when I started getting into techno. And with these, with Andre and with another buddy named Ron Snyder, we started making records in like 90, 95, 96. We started a label and we're putting out electro records. Like the first one was out in 96. And what I'm was not going to say the name of who it is or what the label is. I mean, you can figure that shit out. But I have I have records, electro records out in, in the mid-90s. And uh, those Sonic Groove kids bought them all up, man. The We sent it to Dietrich Shaneman, and he kind of smirked back at us and bought the whole stock. And I think they sold all of them. I don't know if they sold them, but he bought all of them. We did 300 of each issue. And, they, uh, and Sonic Groove, uh, they took them. Yeah. It was that's, pretty killer, man. It's like the equivalent of like walking into hard wax today and having them buy you out or something like that like, yeah uh, i mean could, we couldn't believe it i was like, <laughs> shaking talking to fucking to heather hart on the phone you know what i mean like i don't even think they would remember who we are but uh i mean i have deidre shaneman and i have have mutual friends elsewhere through a totally different channel but but yeah maybe if you if you ask him he could probably tell you the name of the release and when it came out and the name of the label but you're not going to tell us no i mean no, there's no, probably like already shit. like some, it's really some funny. romanian next time guy. i see dietrich i haven't seen him in 13 or 14 years next time i see him we're gonna have a chuckle about it <laughs> shout out complete mastering um but yeah what's up what's up <laughs> <laughs> but okay but we were talking about like how you're sort of bringing in traditionally black american genres like r&b bounce rap rap music in general um yeah. and but at some point you're one of three people playing techno in new orleans you're uh starting to work on music starting to look up to labels like hefty and this certain nascent smart american scene of electronic music you start to feel like chicago's pool but when when a lot of people like think about chicago and like idm and post rock and like everything that was going on there at the time like that almost feels like a white scene to some extent. And obviously there are people like Jeff Parker and like all these amazing people that draw all these connections within that city's like legacy of like free jazz. But do you think that's like a silly thing to say or how do you like sort of reconcile that? You know, I never thought about it until now. And I think largely that that scene is white or was. There are, there are of course exceptions. Robert Icke, Aubrey Lowe, as many people know as Likens, or under his own name, he's been around the Chicago scene since the 90s, for sure. That's when I met him, maybe 2000, 2001. So Rob was a black man in Chicago making really out shit from day one. There are, there are other guys, too. I mean, there's uh, Jeff Wilson, who's a, one of the kind of local DJ hero and, and to a lot of us. Um, older black dude who schooled everybody on music. He just fucking knows everything about all music. But with that said, 
the music that came out of that quote unquote scene wasn't necessarily music that came out of a black culture. It was music that was in the same way that we were. It was music that was influenced by black culture, but didn't come out of it. And, you know, fair, uh, Telephone Tel Aviv did not come out of black culture unless you think, you know, all music from New Orleans comes out of black culture. I'm not black. Charlie's Latino. I'm half Spanish and a whole bunch of other stuff, but we're essentially passing white dudes. And I think a lot of this was going on in Chicago in a similar kind of way where these guys were influenced by all of these African-American genres and, and these kinds of sounds and sort of morphed it into their own thing. So in a way, we're all extremely guilty of some horrible form of cultural appropriation. You could make that argument, maybe. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm not going to sort of get into that but I, w- I was just I, w- I was just curious like because this seemed like something that was like very important to you and then you know we're looking at this stuff in retrospect at this point and um, obviously some of the players like Rob's still very active at this point and a lot of RA readers might have heard of him now as well and he makes beautiful music so the record comes out on Hefty in 2001 and when do you guys make the move to the Midwest? Uh, it happened in 2000, early 2001 or late 2000. I mean, signing to Hefty is why we moved to Chicago. John was like, God, you guys got to come up here. Get out of that. Get out of that fucking gumbo town, man. You're not, you're not going to be able to do anything down there. And he was right because for the most part, aside from my friends, people didn't understand what the fuck we were doing or care about it. And I don't blame them. So, so we went to Chicago and met the whole world there. I mean, I've met friends that I still have, you know, 16 years, 17 years ago, whenever that was. But yeah, that was the move. It was because of Hefty. And it, it seemed like, oh, you know, we'll meet a lot of people that we can collaborate with and, you know, do remixes for, for friends and DJ out more because there's more of that kind of stuff going on there. And Charlie liked to play records, too. And it just it made sense for us. There was no reason to stay in New Orleans. And it worked out. I, th- I think so. Yeah, essentially it worked out. I understand like when you're young, you know, you drive three or five hours just to attend a show and there, there's something like really beautiful about that. And then you move to a city like Chicago at the time or New York and or Berlin or something. And like somebody's playing right down the street and it's like, ah, you know, we see this shit all the time. Like what was what was going on in Chicago at the time? And was it an eye opening experience? Was it just like a sort of plenitude of what you were into i mean every almost every night of the week something something cool was happening i mean i remember like shortly after i moved there jim magus opened uh weekend records which was like that was another weekend records was a huge influence on me jim steered me in a million correct directions every time i walked in there i spent a lot of money there and it's rest in peace to that record store jim's a great dude jim would have i remember one day just walking down division and there's like oh there's an there's like sound coming out. There's an in-store going on at weekend. Oh my God, dude, that's fucking Marcus Pop. Like there's an oval set. Holy shit, Casey Rice and the tortoise dudes are all sitting over there on beanbag chairs listening to oval in the middle of a day on a Sunday. Like everybody's outside drinking beers. That, that kind of shit all the time. All the time. I'm like hanging out at the bar at the empty bottle and Sam Precop is going to do and is doing an just an impromptu set, just him and a guitar and a microphone. This kind of shit going on all the time. It was relentless. And then just the idea of like, dude, Gramophone Records is in this city. We can go to Gramophone Records. We can go to Smart Bar and listen to techno and house music. Like here, any 
night of the week, we can go buy techno records in the city. Can you fucking believe this? Yeah, it was, it was crazy. <laughs> Did you feel immediately accepted? I mean, you had like a pretty hefty cosign to like use the use the pun there but i mean like did you feel immediately embraced by the scene or was it like who are these guys from i mean uh, chicago is notoriously no smiles (laughs) and it still is that way but yeah everybody was super cool man chicago was especially at that time was all about everybody helping everybody out man john herndon coming to play drums on a remix we were doing for somebody just like yeah dude whatever man just it's cool buy me some beers you know it was yeah we were i felt very welcomed and and what about nationally and internationally after the debut came out oh i mean that dude nationally and internationally it took so long for anybody to give a shit about telephone tel aviv it was years before anybody knew who the fuck we were there were like of course there's a small collection of heads or whatever that knew what was up and like other musicians were into it but as far as like general public people giving a single shit about it yeah it was some years we didn't make it to europe for maybe two or three years after fahrenheit came out so it was it was pretty strictly BBS zine types like you know the, yeah. yeah I mean we were do we were we would do little tours and play in tiny little like weird houses or like college barns or we play for Manny Theater in Pittsburgh who everybody's played for Manny and you play on this fucking dirt floor of shed and it's like raining it was like 30 people there furniture house engineer didn't understand that he had to like hard pan the two channels I was sending him like dude you know this went on for years before it was like oh we're like somebody's actually flying us to go play a show in Berlin holy shit this is amazing <laughs> I cannot believe that we're discussing Manny Theiner in this <laughs> RA podcast. I used to Manny booked this yeah, in 2001. Uh, I used to work the door for Manny, and you're like, kidding me, yeah, dude. man. <laughs> I, I probably met you back then. Yeah, I mean, but Millvale Industrial Theater, etc. Yeah, Millvale, yeah. that's the one. Dirt floor. There's a this fucking is, dirt floor. In there. This exchange is just for us at this point. When did the Euros catch on? And I mean, did this sound work over there as well? Uh, it immediately worked better in Europe immediately. And cause the first show we ever did there was in Naples and there was like, Oh shit, there's 500 people and it's sold out and it's in a theater. What? It's the- your first European show. Yeah. It was like, what the fuck is happening? Oh, this is like, it's a real thing here. Okay. I get it. We, we show up in Naples or whatever. And, uh, there's like a crew at the train station ready because we flew into Rome and took the train down there. There's like a crew of dudes that carrying gear and like homies, like the retina guys, uh, Lino Monaco and Nicola Buono, who had put a record out on Hefty as well around the same time we did. You know, they showed up and that started a 16 year friendship that's still strong to this day. And, uh, and then it was like, it, you know, we felt like royalty over there. It was crazy. It was an immediately tremendous difference of like the size of the shows were way bigger. The fees were way bigger. People were actually showing up and clapping and screaming and shit. It was wild, man. Like we didn't expect that. I guess it's what various people making electronic music have experienced over the last <laughs> I don't think we were the years. first or yeah. the last to experience that. It's just ahead over there. What did the live show consist of at the time? It was a massive, massive pain in the ass <laughs> to pull off. And it involved, you know, 
three laptops and a guitar and a bass and a Fender Rhodes and a fucking Space Echo and a million pedals. It was just so Byzantine to travel with it and to set it up. I Unbelievable. And with no crew or anything, just kids trying to haul around this shit. Luckily, though, it was before the days of like crazy extra baggage fees. So we didn't really get crushed on that stuff too hard until a few years later. Wait, so... You were borrowing a Rhodes in Europe, or you brought a Rhodes from oh, Chicago? Oh, no, we would, we would backline yeah, that. Yeah, of course. the rest yeah. of it we'd bring, man. Yeah. So how do you feel about the sort of performative live show in general if somebody's like, yeah, just bring the controller and the laptop because it's just too much of a pain in the ass to I do drink, anything I else. just bring the controller and the laptop yeah. because how the fuck am I going to play all this shit live anyway? How the <laughs> hell am I going to... There's so many parts, like... It's not, and they don't come in like loop style. It's not like, oh, one part, it comes in and it loops. And then another part comes in and it loops. If that's what it was, I would just play it, bring a bass and a Rhodes and backline it. And I would floating points it with just but by myself and just like loop the bass part, loop the Rhodes part. I mean, there's a couple songs that I could do that way. But on the whole, the whole catalog is, is musically broken up in such a way that that kind of perform, solo performance would never work. There's only a handful of songs that would really allow that that kind of performance to be done. I don't care what gear people are using when they play live. I've seen amazing shows with a guy behind a wall of keyboards or playing every instrument. And I've seen, you know, and I've seen uh, somebody walk out there with a gigantic modular rig and nothing else. You know, Marshall Cantorell, I've seen him absolutely destroy before just using a modular synth and a microphone. And I've also seen, you know, live sets of dude just with a laptop absolutely annihilate a room. So the gear doesn't really matter. I, I never really gave a shit about that. And people that are purists about that can just get fucked. I don't care. And I mean, to, to hop way forwards, would you say that Second Woman, your project with fellow New Orleans dude, Turk Dietrich, uh, who I imagine you've known forever as well. Same time. Yeah. yeah like since the 90s. Do you, does that feel like sort of a throwback project in a way, just in terms of the complexity of the drum programming? Mm. Yeah, in a way, well, it's the record that we kind of always wanted to make, but didn't have the skill or the tools to be able to do it um, until now, or, you know, more recently. And uh, it just scratches an itch for both of us to make purely super out electronic stuff that's beat driven, rooted in dub music and rooted in, you know, dance music tropes, but primarily dub, but also takes it super left. You know, that's fitting in on a label like John Elliott's Spectrum Spools. The additions may go sub-label um, and, you know, fitting in there with acts like Container, I think, is on that Eve label. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. These and, guys. And Neil. Yeah, Steve Moore, a lot of like neo Comish type stuff. Like, do you, do you feel like that sort of attention to detail, is that is that still something that's appreciated? Because you also play in like a very sparse band as well, like yeah, uh, Tropic of Cancer. I mean, like that's that's completely skeletal compared mm-hmm. to what you're doing or what you've done in the past and what you're doing with second woman as well. I mean, second woman is, is not the kind of thing that really a lot of people are going to get into, you know, it's really demanding. It's tough to listen to for a lot of people. It's for electronic music heads. It's me and Turk making the record that we always wanted to make or something that we actually would want to listen to, even though after we finish it, I don't listen to it and I'm pretty sure he doesn't either. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if detail is is a thing that is widely given a shit about. People, you know, widely, the public on the whole, they're looking for things to grab onto. 
And Second Woman really isn't going to give you a whole hell of a lot of that unless you're ahead. And that's not any kind of elitist statement at all because I, like, whatever, the proof's in the pudding with me, man. Like, I love super sparse songwriting stuff and I love super weird, you know, post-electronic whatever music, whatever, Second Woman, for example. So, yeah, I don't know if people care about it. I do. I love it. You know, I listen to the new Autechre, the recent Autechre four and a half hour thing, and just I'm blown away by the amount of detail in there. But I know most people are probably like, oh, I don't know, I don't know what it is, or just I don't know, just who cares? It's like, well, it's not for you then. <laughs> but for a period of time in America, like the the sort of general aesthetic had shifted, so that this was more venerated for for a decent amount of time, and still. And within certain circles, but like the palette had shifted over here at that during that period when the first telephone record came out and yeah. the second as well. Yeah, the the palette definitely shifted because it was like, oh, we want to use real instruments. We want to incorporate that. Scott Heron was doing this kind of thing too, especially with Delarosa and Asora and the Savath and Savala stuff where he was like playing pianos and roads and there's violins and upright bass and crazy instrumentation like physical instrumentation that then all just gets put through the meat grinder that was the that was the idea that we all kind of wanted to do i i guess in some cases like that sort of pastoral idm sound and like the american sense often like could take on like a somewhat emo or like cloying feel as well and and you know you guys sort of laid the groundwork for that but i i imagine that that wasn't exactly what you were trying to do ever you're always trying to balance it out a little bit yeah we i mean in in that way i look back at the early telephone stuff the first two records is a failure in a way because we really were trying to make something emotional but when it becomes maudlin is when i start to get put off by it and if i listen back to a lot of it and some of it does sound very maudlin to me and i think charlie had a similar issue with a lot of it to me some of it holds up but i get what you're saying about cloying and, and especially you know if you look at a lot of sort of underground idm stuff that's made now you know stuff that's like on the idm forums and stuff like this a lot of it really is just so purely obviously emotionally manipulative that you know i'm kind of turned off by that and i wasn't referring to your music by the way but we're no both but, refer- you're, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah, funny yeah. that you say that because i i did always feel like god we're just laying it on a little too heavy like I just want to lighten it up. Like Map was really a swing and a miss for both of us. It's and a Map of what is effortless. The second record. Yeah. And uh, the burden of this is laid squarely at me and Charlie's feet. I wouldn't dare drag Damon Aaron or Lindsey Anderson through the mud on this. They did. They did awesome work on that record. I think it's really the only example of the Pitchfork getting a review correct. What What did they say? <laughs> they said, "Look, man, this production's great, but the songs are kind of." It's, it's like overdressing. Like the songs aren't really up to par with the production. And part of that is that we didn't kind of pull off what we really wanted to pull off. We wanted to make this really dark, kind of sinister, sparse R&B record. And it just didn't come out that way. It came out being, you know, something else. We just kind of let it lead us. And maybe we let it lead us a little too much instead of grabbing it back by the reins and kind of bringing it back into darker territory where we wanted it to be. So, and a lot of that has to, goes back to what you were saying about a, a, a melody being cloying or something being sort of emotionally manipulative or, or a little too much. And I feel like a lot of the sort of problems that I have with that record are based in that problem. Jumping forwards to immolate yourself, by that standard, 
that's a triumph because there's a level of detachment and melody. The songwriting's there at that point, like in terms of, you know, fitting stuff into like, like, what is this exactly? Like, is this, is this a new take on elegantly detached new wave or like what's, what's going on here? Like that, that is almost like more traditional in a way, but doesn't really sound like any of those other records either. No, I mean, that record, you know, it's obviously influenced by New Wave and stuff like that. You know, we've always loved that kind of music. I've loved it since I was a kid, same as Charlie. But we did want to, we wanted to make it a lot crustier and a lot darker and more kind of sinister with detachment in it, I think is a good description. I think you understand it well if you, if you think about detachment when you listen to that record. And then it's still, we still wanted it to have just touches of this kind of, sculpted electronic stuff for the first two records so there's bits and pieces of that in there too and at the end of the day i mean seven years later well we finished it in early 2008 we wrote it in 2007 and it was done early 2008 so it's a very old record for me now i don't hate it <laughs> it's i don't i mean i don't love anything i've ever done i'm always disappointed in in retrospect at pretty much everything i've ever done but i stand by that record and i'm pretty sure if charlie were alive he would too he was really happy with it when we were finished it. We didn't hate it immediately upon finishing it, which we were looking forward to touring on it. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe that record holds up better for me than the other ones, but, I mean, your mileage may vary. I think fans disagree with me. That was probably one that I came in on fully and then, you know, sort of went back after that. But, you know, that's just because... I'm a little bit younger and yeah, obviously you really wasn't. Young or something? No, I'm not. I'm okay. not that young. I'm pretty old, but I just wasn't that cool, you know, early. And we early weren't. On. We still aren't. I'm still not. Believe me, man. Yeah, neither, neither am I. We talked about Manny Thiner on this podcast. But there is, you know, like a listlessness to that record as well. And obviously preceded a pretty dark period. And I can't imagine that the events of that time period, namely Charlie's death, the death of your father, sort of all hitting at the same time, you know, like your musical partner, your childhood friend, obviously the years after were extremely tough. And, you know, I can't even imagine myself, but was it, was it sort of dark leading into it as well? It was getting a little dark leading into it. I don't want to say too much about that, but suffice it to say that, yes, it was getting dark leading into that. You know, Charlie and his girlfriend were, let's just say they weren't getting along. And uh, and me and my girlfriend, we weren't really getting along. So in that kind of light way, yeah, there was relationship trouble, but there was other stuff too. It wasn't all good leading up to that. I, I was still, of course, totally shocked when Charlie turned up dead. But um, I guess if I were paying attention, I could have seen it coming, you know? Yeah. It's such like a collaborative project and you've, you've done things since then. You did things in the period before you recently brought the name back, but you know, you have Sons of Magdalene, you know, you've done a lot of production work. You've, you played with Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails, but it, it's interesting. Like when you say the telephone sound, is that always in your mind, you and Charlie? Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because, you know, as I'm working on new stuff right now, I have quite a bit of it. And it's all sort of at the point where I would 
hand it to Charlie and say, okay, can you take this? Just break this and bring it back. And like, oh, I got this, Playboy. I'll bring it back to you in a couple of days. Just, you know, and then he'd just burn one, you know, and, uh, and like stay awake for 48 hours, probably a little high and uh, a bottle of wine and just shred on it. And then bring it back to me, and it would be a complete fucking mess, but it would be a masterpiece. And uh, and then we'd work on it together to finish it. So I'm in this weird headspace now of like looking at these songs or these pieces of music. Some of them aren't songs, and going, okay, fuck. Uh, what would he do right now to this? I have to like p- try to put myself inside his headspace to understand what he would do and why he would do it because there was a reason for everything. At least I think there was. Maybe a lot of what he did was just chaos, and it was just a thing I didn't know about him. Because the result, a lot of it was chaos. But I know that he had very specific reasons for working the way he worked and doing the things that he did musically. I mean, I'm I'm better qualified, I think, to understand what he was doing because because the collaboration was such a long one. It was a ten year collaboration. Well, you're the best qualified. The best yeah, qualified. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't think anybody could be perfectly qualified to understand how he worked or what he was doing because it's a it was a pretty labyrinthine process i think it was like legendary ohio loudmouth david thomas of like perubu like when they were like rehearsing he'd like draw a line down the center of the room and he'd say okay the synth and me were like the art part of the band and like rhythm section you guys are just like you know you're just functionality or artillery like you guys are like just meat and potatoes and we're like going way out there and what was the split between you and charlie or like what are you trying to inhabit like where what is that like musical and mental space that you're trying to get to it was all the division wasn't a very strict division of labor it was a division of methodology and my methodology was always order construction building these sorts of things and charlie's methodology was chaos entropy burning destruction you know (laughs) so i have to kind of learn this new headspace i have to learn this new way of how can i break this which isn't something that i would typically think when writing music or working on music i would think how can i make this better how can i uh, improve this or can i think about this structurally or think about this architecturally or now i have to think about okay i need to take the sledgehammer to this so that's the weird thing for me is I'm, I've never worked that way. And he came up with the name Immolate Yourself. We did. Kind of, I think, he, yeah, I think he did. We were joking. I mean, we came up, we were, it came up in a conversation. We were together. We were like, dude, we should just give that record like a totally like hilarious black metal or like early nineties, uh, RC records, death metal name. It was like, dude, yeah. Like, like a fucking old cannibal corpse type, like, <laughs> Like hammer smashed face or like, you know, inverted meat hook sodomy or like immolate yourself or some shit. And I was like, dude, fuck. Yeah, that's amazing. But I mean, immolate yourself like also ended up oddly like being a pretty succinct summary of like his creative method as well. It's just like, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's weird because I kind of, I think I'm drawn to work with, with artists like that. Greg Puchato, who I work with on music all the time, he's a guy like that who's like, his thing, I remember, it was a conversation between me and Greg and Dominic Ferno. And Dominic was like, Greg, how do you do that every night? How do you, because I mean, I've been doing Prurient for a minute now and screaming and every night and it gets tired. Like, how do you get ready for a show? Do you do warm-ups or whatever? Do you do anything like this? And Greg's like, no, man, I just... 
Like two minutes before the show, I just like fucking picture myself on fire. For those of RA listeners who don't know, obviously Dominic is now an Oscutun sort of techno guy, purient, Vatican shadow and everything. But Greg Pucciato has a project with Josh called The Black Queen, but he's also known for his group, the Dillinger Escape Plan, who are up there beyond completely destructive noise and hardcore acts are like probably one of the most ferocious yet technical live performances that you could really ever witness and it's savage they just played the regent the other night and you know dude jumped off the balcony you know i mean he's he's unhinged greg is he's a psychopath when it comes to stuff like that but then off stage he's like this kind of mellow not sort of quiet dude like he's he's real chill and beta when he's not on stage and then on stage he's just the I don't even know, man. He's he's. I've never seen anything like it. They're one of the best live bands I've ever seen. But I, I guess the thing that he has in common with Charlie is that he's like a chaos. You know, he's just he's a little entropy ball everywhere he goes. He's the Tasmanian devil. You know, Charlie as a person wasn't like that. He was you know kind of polished and obliging, you could say. But musically, Charlie was the Tasmanian devil. You managed to sort of be around all these people because, you know, you're incredibly talented and technically apt yourself. You're sort of revealing like what you've learned from these various people and how you've integrated that into your own methodology. But can you can you talk a little bit about your relationship with like Trent Reznor and, you know, what you learned from him as a musician or what you brought to his whole sphere as well? I don't know what I brought to him, but... uh I can tell you what I learned from him is a level of perfectionism that I don't think anybody's got. He's got a set of ears on him that hears the slightest flaw and just sets off his enrage timer. And uh, and that's to be commended, I think. That level of perfectionism and attention to detail is a large part of why he is who he is and where he is. And, uh, and you know, I don't have that kind of attention to detail. Or, no, let me just be brag a little bit. I definitely have that kind of attention to detail because I fucking hear the details, but I'm too lazy to do anything about it. And that's why I'm, like, kind of a slacker musician because I just don't give a shit the way Trent gives a shit. But that's why he's Trent and now CEO of the fucking universe or whatever, uh, Apple Music or whatever, you know, incredible composer. Production-wise, in the studio, he's a shredder, a cute, and physical musician. He's an amazing physical musician, and he'll say over and over again, "I suck. I'm a shitty musician. I'm a shitty musician." But he's not. He's like an amazing keyboard player. He's a fantastic guitar player. He's really insanely hyper musically talented from just an innate kind of level. Not even a learned thing. It's just innate with him. It's like the dude that, like, you know, I had to like practice guitar forever to be able to just barely even get around on the damn thing. You know, it's like the kid when you're a little kid and you try to throw the football and it just fucking flies up in the air and it's wounded duck. Trent's like the dude that would just like pick the football up and Doug Flutie it, you know, 40 (laughs) yards, perfect spiral. He's like an innate musician. He just doesn't know how to suck. So what I learned is that I'm not that good. That's what I learned from Trent. For our listeners, you guys work together on some level for a long time, obviously, with the uh, remix of Even Deeper that appeared on the compilation from 2007. But can you talk about your time working with him and both from a writing perspective and in the live band? Oh, I mean, dude, being in the studio with Trent is the shit. It's very different now than it was 
16, 17 years ago when we first got in the studio with him, but it's awesome. He's like a, he's a, he's a try everything guy and I'm a try everything guy. And Charlie is a try everything guy. And in, you have to kind of explore those, those ideas. And so ideas come out. He's like, cool. Let's, let's do it. He's never, he's not a studio neg guy, but of course I can't really speak to how he is in the studio the same way that Atticus could talk about it or that Alan Mulder could talk about it. But Trent's awesome to work with because ideas in the studio, there's no dumb ideas. I find that inspiring. I like to work that way. I don't like to throw ideas out. I, I do it all the time now. I try to neg people and they're like, dude, you're negging. Like, can we just try this? And I'm like, okay, you're right. We'll try it. Oh, you were right. Yeah, it's fucking great. Of course, I'm an idiot. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just old and lazy. I'm fucking lazy, man. I don't want to do the work. <laughs> just, I just want to hang out and like, pet my bunny not do anything <laughs> was part of bringing the telephone project back i mean was it was it like i think i'm musically ready i think i'm emotionally ready or i'm ready to challenge myself when you did the announcement on okay there's going to be a reissue there's going to be a tour tentatively i'm going to say i'm going to release some new music under this name and then sort of being taken aback by the response were you sort of putting it out there and being like, okay, I need to motivate myself to do this. Yeah, it was It was just, honestly, it was born out of a whole lot of just self-disgust. Just being disgusted with how much of a slacker I am and like, even if I'm working 60 hours a week and getting tons of shit done, which, you know, whatever, I've worked on a lot of music in the intervening time. Just a disgust with me not working for myself, doing too much stuff with other people, which I love doing, and I'll continue to do it to some degree. Here's a way to say it. Sorry, I'm kind of trumping right now. I'm like, <laughs> incomplete sentences, run-on sentences, subordinate clauses of indirect. Anyway, Kanye West, I read this Kanye quote, and it really stung when I read it. And he said, if you don't go out there and execute your vision, somebody else gonna hire you to execute theirs. <laughs> And that was like, oh, right in the fucking nuts, man. He's so right about that. And that kind of kind of stung. And it made me realize like, okay, dude, like you're, you went through this shit and it was super sad. Oh, your friend died, your dad died and, and big John Hughes died. And, 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 and y'all are, you're all sad about that. And your butt hurt about the fucking bad cards that life dealt you. And so you're going to mope and play World of Warcraft and like try to not work on music and try to run away from it all. Or you're going to do something about this. You know, like, what are you going to do about this? You going to really like just let your life's work just go away? I don't know, man. I mean, that was like a pretty, de pretty defining moment when I started to realize like, nah, man, like, I, why should I stop doing this? I got to at least try before stopping. I have to at least try and fail instead of just giving up and walking away from it without just because I'm scared to touch it or something. Like, yeah, the pan's gonna be hot, but I'll put a little, you know, grab a towel and pick it up. It'll be all right, and I'll be able to cook, you know. <laughs> 